You can have a seat, pull out your Bible, turn to the Gospel of Mark, and tell the person on your right and left, I'm glad you're here. I don't know if you've ever taken inventory about the surface questions that we ask one another consistently. How are you doing? Uh, How's the family? What are you up to? How's work? I mean, most of us have used those questions or similar questions even this morning. And they can be very good questions. They can be meaningful questions, but we use them as surface questions. And the reason we know we use them as surface questions because we feel weird when someone gives us something besides a surface response. So if we say, how are you doing? Surface question. And they say, not good. And then we immediately look for someone else to bring into the conversation for them to talk about it with. It's a surface question. If you say to somebody, you know, hey, how's how's the family doing? What we're looking for is the family is great. The family has never been better. You know, we're not perfect. Life's not, you know, perfect, but things are really going well. That's what we, that's what we want to hear when they say, you know, gosh, and they start to cry. And you're like, let me get you the name of a counselor because I was actually on my way to the parking lot. And I just wanted you to know that I noticed you. And that's it. That's all I wanted you to know. That's why I asked you how your family was. Surface questions. What we're going to see in the scripture today in the Gospel of Mark are not surface questions. We're going to see deep questions. Questions of the soul. You pull out your listening guide. Love for you to follow along. First thing I want you to write down. Question number one. Who do I love this much? Who do I love this much? Mark chapter 2, verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So Jesus is in a crowded house. And many have come to see his miracles. The miracles of Mark chapter 1 verses 29 through 34. What they've gotten instead of miracles is a message. He's preaching A message to them. And four men bring a paralyzed man to Jesus. Now we don't get the backstory. We don't know if these five men have been friends from youth. We don't know if this man was just on the side of the road and these four guys or two guys or one of the guys passed him every day and knew that Jesus was in town, felt compassion on this guy that they see consistently there, laying on the side of the road, begging, and their hearts were moved. We don't know if it was a family member. We don't know the backstory. We just know that they brought the man on a cot to Jesus. But when they get to the house, the house is so packed with people, they can't get in. 
so they go outside, and if it was a wealthy family in Galilee, there was probably a stairway that led to the roof. And the roof, you see in your listening guide, a typical roof was constructed of wood and covered with sticks, reeds, thistles, and about a foot of earth packed down to resist water. Now you talk about going the extra mile. Because they had to count the cost. When they got up on top of that roof, they had to count the cost. They had to count the financial cost. What is it going to cost us to repay this homeowner for the damage that we've done as we begin to remove the dirt and the thistles and the reeds and the sticks and the wood? They had to count their personal cost, the time that it was going to cost them or may cost them to repair it themselves, something they probably offered. What was the relational cost? Because you know, as soon as they started moving the roof, the owner of the house knew something was happening. And then there would have been a little hole with somebody peeking through, and the owner would have begun to immediately yell at them. How do we know they would yell at them? Because this is what you would do if somebody started tearing a hole in your roof when you get home this afternoon. You lay down for a nap, everything is peaceful. Somebody's face coming through your ceiling, you're going to start yelling. You're not going to say, hey, just make it a little bit bigger and drop down a person through the middle of it. You're going to yell. They had to count the relational cost. Now, let's put ourselves in their shoes this morning. Let's just assume that we would want to be the kind of person who would help. But what might prevent us from doing that? Well, I think about my own life, I think about busyness. I'd want to do it, I'd want to help somebody but I'm just too busy. You know, most of us have the heart to help, but we don't have the schedule to help. It's like Jesus' parable of the good Samaritan. Remember there's a man beaten on the side of the road, left for dead? Two men pass by, just leave him there. Why? Because they were on their way to somewhere else. That's what we say all the time. I would like to help, but I'm always on my way to somewhere else. And I never have time Never have time to help. Too busy. Or it's awkward. It's another reason why we might not have followed through the way these four men did. Think about how awkward it would be if you were the first one to look down through the hole in the roof. Everybody's focused on you, wondering what you are going to do. I read a book a while back and was about how specific acts of generosity and kindness can be great door openers for conversations about Jesus with strangers. And one of the stories the author told was about how he went to a grocery store and collected all the carts and in the parking lot and brought them inside. And the person responsible for bringing in those carts, you know, that's a, it's a thankless job and it's a hard job and it's the heat of the day and that person was so moved that he came over and, and this guy had just this amazing Jesus conversation with him. And so I read that book. I was inspired. And so one afternoon I had some time. So I went to the Kroger and the Kroger had a ton of grocery carts out in the parking lot. And I started on the right side and I wasn't brave enough to do the big long train because that seemed like it would be hard to drive. And so I kind of would do four or five at a time and I collected them and I got them out of the bin 
and I brought them inside where the carts are collected, and everybody stopped. The cashiers stopped. All the staff stopped. They, they stopped. They turned around, and they looked at me. They didn't say anything, but they looked at me, but I had only done the far right side, so I came back, and I did the same thing with the middle, pulling them out of the bin and collecting them from all over the place and brought them in. Again, they stopped, turned around, looked at me, puzzled about what I was doing. I just placed them there where they go, and then I went to do the final section, the far left side, and collected them all from the bin, brought them in put them with the rest of the carts, and then I just stood there. Because this was the moment where somebody was supposed to come over and (laughs) ask me why I was doing such things, and nobody came over. They were just staring at me. So so I just stood there. I didn't know how long to stand there. I just stood there. I didn't know, like, should I just yell out Jesus and then (laughs) turn around and leave? So we just awkwardly stared at one another for quite a good long while, and and then I left. <laughs> if, you've ever, if you've ever consistently tried to be kind to people, you've been in a moment like that where you tried to do something good, but it just felt awkward. It just felt weird. It, it was too vulnerable for them. It was vulnerable for you. And you wondered, and was this even worth it? And, so the next time there's an opportunity for kindness, we remember the last time, and we're like, ah, I don't want to be the weird person. And we don't do it. But what the Scripture's asking us today is who do we love so much that we would say, you know what, it's more important than whatever list of excuses I could come up with. I love this person so much. I'm so moved by my heart for them. I'm willing to count the cost, overcome any possible justification for doing nothing to help. Who do I love this much? Question number two, who needs their sins forgiven? This is a question the scripture is asking us. And when answering this question that we get from verse five, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, when we're answering the question, who needs their sins forgiven, we tend to swing from one extreme to the other. And on one extreme, we think forgiveness is too difficult, usually when we're thinking about ourselves. You know, it's just too difficult. I've done too many things. It would be impossible for me to be forgiven by God. Or we go to the other end of the extreme, and we think, is is forgiveness really necessary? Which is... What I think pops into our mind when we read the story about the paralytic, because weren't you surprised if you didn't know this story, that Jesus says to him after his friends opened up the roof, went to all that trouble to lower him down, and Jesus' response to him is, son, your sins are forgiven. You know that the friends were like, that's not why we dragged him here. That's not why we counted the cost. Clearly, his need is that he is paralyzed, and we believed you might be able to remedy the situation. Because we think, is it really necessary forgiveness? I mean, this man's paralyzed. He's had a hard life. Maybe he's had to beg. Who bathed him? Is he poor? Does he have anyone to look out for him? We're imagining all these things, and 
The more we imagine it, it's like a sliding scale. The harder your life is, maybe the less we think you need forgiveness. Like God should just, he should just kind of overlook it because of how hard your life is. But Jesus says to him first, your sins are forgiven. Or we swing to the opposite end and we say, no, it's too difficult. You know, we quote the great philosopher of Texas, George Strait. If God knew half the things I've done, he'd never let me in. But we read the scripture and we see the struggle of sin, even within God's own people. You see this list. Abraham was unfaithful to his wife. Jacob was a liar and a thief. Moses was a murderer. David was an adulterer and a murderer. Solomon worshipped idols. And yet God made covenants with all of these men. God willingly bound himself to be faithful to these men, even though he knew they would not return the favor. So when we say, well, God could not forgive me because of all uh, that I've done, you know, my best hope is that he's so busy doing all of his God things that he never takes a close look at my life because my list is just too... It's too long, it's too deep, it's too bad. We remember the words of Jesus at the Last Supper when he holds up the cup and he says, this is the new covenant of my blood. Through Christ, God is still willing to promise faithfulness to people who will not return the favor. The bigger question though I think about the forgiveness of sin that most of us have is, you know, why do I need my sins forgiven at all? Put something to mark your place in Mark chapter 2 and turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis, there was a garden. It says in chapter 2, verse 8, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, In the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And then there was sin. You remember God said to Adam and Eve, don't eat the fruit from this tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And it says in verse 6 of chapter 3, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. There was sin. There was also a curse. Chapter 3, verse 16. Because of sin, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. There was a curse. They were also removed from the garden. Chapter 3 verse 23. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work from the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. They were removed and they were blocked from returning. Chapter 3, verse 24. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim. That was a mighty 
forceful, angelic being and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. I don't know if you've ever wondered about the Bible. A lot of, a lot of people think that the scripture is like a collection of fortune cookie fortunes. It's just a bunch of random advice all bound together. But there's an ark, and that ark has a story, and it is the story of how God is undoing all of these things in Genesis chapter 3. How he's undoing and redoing the fact that they were blocked and removed. He's undoing the curse. He's creating a new garden Revelation chapter 21, listen to what this says of a future event. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That ark of scripture, it's telling us that God is taking us to a new heaven and a new earth, a new creation, a new garden. Adam and Eve were blocked from the garden. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 18 says, For through Jesus we both have access in one spirit to the Father. They were blocked. We have access in Christ. Adam and Eve were removed from the garden. Hebrews chapter four, verse 16. Because of Jesus, our great high priest, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. They were removed. We can be confident that we can draw near. Adam and Eve were cursed. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus became our curse, nullifying the curse. So why do I need forgiveness today? Why do you need forgiveness today? Why did the paralyzed man needed forgiveness today? Because to have personal claim and stake and connection to this undoing and redoing that God is doing. We need our sin forgiven. Which leads us to the next question, number three. Who can forgive sins? Mark chapter two, verse six. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise up, pick up your bed, and go home. So Jesus has a confrontation with the scribes. This is actually the first of five confrontations in the next chapter of Scripture between Jesus and religious leaders. The first one is here, chapter 2, verse 1 when he forgives the sin of the paralytic. And then he eats with tax collectors and sinners, and the Jewish leaders get upset. They get upset when his disciples did not fast. They also were bothered when his disciples did not honor the Sabbath the way they thought should be done. 
And in chapter 3, verse 1, they're bothered when Jesus heals on the Sabbath. Now it says the scribes were protesting internally. It says within themselves. They weren't even saying this out loud, but Jesus knew what they were thinking. It was the job of a scribe to copy the biblical texts, keep them pure, and expound on their meaning. The scribes were the boundary keepers of the Old Testament law, and they felt like Jesus was operating outside of those boundaries, and it bothered them. Because in Jewish thinking, even the Messiah could not forgive sins. God alone had that authority and right. These listeners in that house that day knew if Jesus had authority to forgive sins, then Jesus is God. Who can forgive sins? Let's think about how most of our neighbors, friends, people we work with would answer that question. They'd probably answer it if they believed in God at all, like, you know, God is keeping a slate. We all have a slate, and a lot of us have a slate, and sin fills up the slate. And our job is to get this, the, the, the slate clean. Right? Best case scenario is we would be able to undo all of our sin and then put on the slate good things. But maybe more realistic option for us is just to erase all of the bad things. So you've been out of church for a while and you know that's wrong so but recently you've come to church for three Sundays in a row we're giving out trophies actually when you leave today but you've been three in a row so you're like hey that's pretty good I think that undoes some of the damage that I've done by laying out of church for so long so we'll just erase that one that'll be good you've been a little jealous of a friend lately you know that God talks about that in the Ten Commandments, and so you felt bad about that. So you sent a friend an email. So it was like one bad thing for one good thing. We'll erase that off. And then you gossiped about that friend later. But, and so then you sent another email, and it was just erased that over there. You, you've been difficult to your wife, so you sent her some flowers. Erase that. That would be great. You lost your temper with your kids, so you took them to Chuck E. Cheese, which means not only do you get to erase that one, you get to erase the one below it because Chuck E. Cheese is like going into the bowels of hell coming out. And we wear this. We wear our slate around. And here's how you know if you're wearing your slate around, and this is in your thinking. If when you make a mistake and you sin, if you want to put distance between that moment and the next time you pray, then this is your thinking. If you feel ashamed even being here this morning because of how you acted yesterday, you're thinking like this. If you feel bad that you haven't read the scripture and that feeling bad keeps you from feeling worthy to read the scripture, then this is your thinking. Trying to erase all the bad so that I have a clean slate before God. 
But listen to what the scripture tells us. Acts chapter 10, verse 43. The prophets witness everyone who believes in him, Jesus, receives forgiveness of sin. Acts chapter 5, verse 31, that God has exalted Jesus to give repentance and forgiveness of sin. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, he gave himself for our sins. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, Jesus made purification for our sins. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, Christ was offered to bear the sins of many. 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus appeared, to, uh, appeared in order to take away sins. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus loves us and has freed us from sin by his blood. The only one who can erase our sin is Jesus and his eraser is his own blood. One good deed does not undo a bad one. You cannot even the scales. There is not a hope for us to erase anything But God has loved us, and he has sent Jesus, who can erase. And the last thing I want you to write down, who can heal? Who can heal? Verse 12, and he arose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. One commentator defines a miracle like this. Miracles are events that produce astonishment and wonder, causing the Christian to marvel and sense an awareness of God. They were amazed. It says that they glorified God because of what Jesus was able to do. You know, within the next six months, we'll all be in a situation where we need a miracle. It's what you'll be praying for. You'll look around at other options and you think, well, there just doesn't seem to be a way forward in this situation other than God doing what only God can do. You're gonna need a miracle. And when that happens, let's let this sentence be our statement of faith in that moment. In your listening guide, the miracle I need for the glory God deserves. The miracle I need for the glory God deserves. Why did Jesus heal this paralyzed man? Because the man was in need? Because Jesus loved him? To prove that the Son of Man had authority to forgive sins. Jesus healed this man from his paralytic condition for his own namesake. A lot of people get the first part of the sentence. The miracle I need this is what I need. And God, I thought you loved me. And don't you love me? And if you love me, you'll do this. And if you care about me, you do this. And if you're close, you'll do this. Almost everybody can get behind the first part of the sentence, the miracle I need. And then we become like those lepers who Jesus healed. You remember what happened? All of them went away happy that they were healed, except one turned around and came back to Jesus. Said thank you. And if we just believe in the first part of the sentence, the miracle I need, 
we will receive our miracle and walk away from Jesus. But if it's the miracle I need for the glory that God deserves, we receive our miracle and we stay with Jesus. And somebody whose theology is big enough to include both parts of the sentences, their faith is unshakable. Their faith is unstoppable. Because our heart becomes like the Apostle Paul's heart in Philippians chapter 1, verse 20, when he says that Christ would be glorified in my body, whether by life or by death. That Christ would be honored in my life. Whether by life I get my miracle or I don't get my miracle, I love both. When God gives me what I need and I love when God gets glory from my life. This is how we know we're taking steps of maturity of faith when I would love both things. That God would work and that he would get glory. These are simple questions Mark chapter 2 has asked us today, but they're deep questions, questions of the soul. How do you answer them? Who do you love this much? Who needs to be forgiven? Who can forgive? Who is able to heal? Pray with me. Just a spirit of prayer. You should grab a moment between you and the Lord. Just ask a simple question. What's the next step for me today? And all that we've experienced so far here in our time together. God, what are you asking from me, for me? Which direction do you want me to move? God, we pray you would help us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand to your feet? If this is your first time here at Bayou City, we want to say welcome to you today. We also close our services every week with a time of prayer together, and our prayer team is going to come forward and take their places even now while I'm inviting you to come and pray. You know, God puts burdens on our heart, a heaviness around our soul, I think, to direct our prayers. And so there may be something that you're carrying today that you would consider just a burden. It's a heaviness about you. And God has given you that so that you will know how to pray. And if you have a burden today, doesn't matter what it is, then you don't hesitate to come forward to pray in just a second when I invite you. But I want to make a few simple invitations. First, You know, we ask the question, who do I love this much? Maybe there's someone on your heart that you love very much today and you're not coming to pray for yourself, you're coming to pray for them. You come and pray for them. The Apostle Paul, he he thanked one of his churches for praying for for him because he said, you know, through the Spirit's help, this will work out for my deliverance because they prayed. Your friend may be delivered from the situation they're in because you prayed today. Come and pray for a friend, for someone you love. Do you need a miracle today? Forget six months from now. You need a miracle right now. The miracle I need 
for the glory God deserves. You come and ask for a miracle. And the third thing, if you need physical healing today, just like the paralyzed man, I'm to invite you to come and pray over in our access room over here in the corner. Some of our elders are going to be over there. You come and pray for physical healing. They're going to anoint you with oil because James chapter 5 says that if you're sick, you have illness, then you call the elders and they'll anoint you with oil and pray that you may be healed. And so we're going to have a time of prayer. So you, as others come forward, you go over there and Pastor Robbie and I will be over there. We'd love to pray for you and anoint you with oil so that you can be healed. You may say, well, I'm, I'm not paralyzed today and I would feel bad bringing anything less than that. Those are the people who need the big miracles. You know, I just have back pain and everybody has back pain. You just pick a random person next to you and ask if your back hurts. And if they're above 30, they're like, yeah, it hurts. <laughs> so I don't, you know. But listen, is your illness, sickness, pain, is it a hindrance to you? And if it's a hindrance to you, then God cares about it. You come and ask God to heal you. We would love to pray for you for your physical healing. You know, last week, I, at, after church was over, a, a husband and wife came over to me and said, that, you know, we've been coming to the church for a couple of months. They came for the first time because they saw the sign out front and they drove by it all the time and they thought, you know, we just should pop in there and see what's happening. So they came to church and have been coming for a couple of months, and, but more just kind of sitting in the back. They know a few people who sit near them, but just been coming, kind of checking it out. And they told me a story that a while ago, we made some specific invitations for prayer like I'm doing today. And um, She said there was an invitation to come and pray if you have pain in your body. And she said, I, I did have some pain. And, um, there was an invitation that if you're struggling with your job, you don't have a job or you need a job or there's a job situation, come and pray. And, and if you, the third invitation was if you're just feeling anxious today, you're feeling worried, come and pray. She said, all three of those applied to us. Uh, I had some pain in my leg. Uh, my husband needed a job and because he needed a job, I was anxious. So she said it was all three, and so we came forward to pray. We had never done anything like that, but we came forward to be prayed for. And she said, um, last week she was telling me, I'm pain-free, my husband got a job, and I'm not worried anymore. So, you know, you may be on the fence today. You're like, well, I can go forward, but I the miracle I need for the glory God deserves. Listen, if you're on the fence about whether you should come and pray for your own sake, what if God could get a lot of glory from the miracle that you pray for today? So God, we ask that you would do miracles among us today. It says in your gospels that there are a few places that you could do no miracles because of the unbelief in that place but not in this place today. Not in this place today. We believe that you are able. We believe that with immediacy, you can say to someone, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. We pray we would see that immediacy today. It's people pain-free, sickness-free, disease-free. You are a miracle-working God. We give you glory. In Jesus' name.